You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, If we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The 200-proof strength of the Gospel in Romans. Good morning. Good to see you guys. My name is Rick, and I get the honor and privilege of preaching and teaching God's word here at Gospel Community Church. I feel like oftentimes I get to introduce myself, but we're also, I'm a part of an amazing church family, and oftentimes I want to introduce you to so many of the members within our church family. And so, yeah, for instance, this morning, Ian, who was leading worship, he's married to Meredy, and they have three little ones, but Ian is not only a talented musician, but he's also a jack of all trades. And so he can pretty much fix or repair anything. In fact, while Brad and I were hunting this last year, we had a question, if you could pick your own Navy SEAL team, who was one of the guys, and it was like unanimous amongst the guys that we would pick Ian, because he knows how to do just about anything. And and to introduce someone else, we have Hannah Stamp. I saw her here this morning. I don't know if she's in the room, but yeah, that's Hannah. Hannah helps lead our women's ministry. She's an incredible teacher, not just in the school district, but also for Gospel Community Church. And so those are a couple of our family members. I would love for you guys to all get to know them all. And so uh, if you're here this morning, you're visiting. Those are a couple of people that are part of our family. Our beliefs lock us in arm, our beliefs primarily around who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we believe those truths are revealed to us in God's word. We're not left to uh, relativism. We're not left to some arbitrary standard of truth. We have God's word. We're going to open it up. We're going to see what it says and understand that is our foundation for truth. It's authoritative. It's inspired and it's good. So open it with me to Romans chapter seven this morning. We're going to be in verses one through six. There's plenty of content there. Be a little longer than usual. I got two and a half hours worth of lecturing, so don't worry. That's not a reality. All right. Romans chapter seven. We're going to be in verses one through six. Listen to these words. I'm not going to read from Romans right now. I just, just to let you know, I said, listen, to these words, these are not the words from Romans. So. <laughs> Well, the whole town's talking about the line I'm walking that leads right to your door. Oh, how I used to roam. I was a rolling stone. 
I used to have a wild side. They say a country mile wide. I'd burn those beer joints down. That's all changed now. You turn my life around. I used to love them and leave them. Oh, I'd brag about my freedom. How no one could tie me down. Then I met you. Now my heart beats true. Yeah, I saw the light. I've been baptized by the fire in your touch and the flame in your eyes. I'm born to love again. I'm a brand new man. By show of hands, how many of you guys know where that comes from? Oh, guys, you're my favorite people. (laughs) We'll meet after church and I'll tell you about a little secret society we have. Those are not the lyrics of some random poetry. Those are the lyrics of Brooks and Dunn from a song called Brand New Man. And I got to tell you, I love country music, but it has horrible theology. (laughs) However, with this, we're going to draw from some of these truths this morning, because what we're starting to see in Romans chapter six and chapter seven is Paul is unpacking a brand new man and a brand new woman and a brand new humanity. So much so that what Paul is helping us to see because of who God is and what he's done and accomplished in Christ And who we now are as new creatures and a new creation with a new identity, our relationship with two things has to change. And I I would say if you don't understand this, you're you're, going to miss the whole message of what Christianity is. And that's this. Our relationship with sin changes and our relationship with the law of God changes. And if you don't understand that. Like I said, you're going to miss it. So the burden's on me to help you guys understand that and help you guys understand how as a new creation in Christ, as someone who has put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, our relationship with the law of God will change. But our relationship with sin will also change. That's what Paul was showing in chapter six. Our relationship with sin changes. This is a horrible example, but hopefully it lands. Pre-Jesus, I had a really bad night with peach snops. And I threw up like crazy to this day. I can't even smell peach snobs without feeling sick inside. And I would say so much so for that for the Christian who is now in Christ, the things that we once enjoyed, the sins that we once just ventured into without any thought are the things that start to smell bad and turn our stomachs. Why? Because it's not who we are anymore. We are a new creation with a new nature that lives in a new way. So Paul's going to unpack today. So here's our main point. When you belong, you long. When you belong, you long. When you belong to Christ and you're in a covenant marriage with him, you long. But you long for different things. Your longings change. Your desires change. And we're going to look at that. Read, me, uh, read with me. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is set free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray. 
Father, where we have a misunderstanding on what the gospel is, correct us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we're not left in this world to not know what truth is. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that it's inspired. Thank you that it's authoritative. Thank you that it highlights who you are and what you've done and accomplished through the work of your son. Thank you that you save not just a person, but a people, a covenant people that get to be with you for all eternity. But we get to experience the joys of that relationship right now on this earth. Let us be a people that live in such a way that helps transform the city we're in, the workplaces we're in, the neighbors that we have. Lord, change our relationship with the law and with sin in the ways that it's broken. Through the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you belong, you long. In verses 1 through 3, Paul is helping us to understand the law. And so he starts off right out of the gate saying, Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. Throughout this letter, Paul has been speaking to both Jews and Gentiles. And that's been clear. There's times where he's addressing the Jews. There's times where he's addressing the Gentiles. Right now, we know that Paul is addressing his Gentile or his Jewish audience because at the end of this, if you go all the way down to verse six, he talks about the written code. Jewish people would have been familiar with the written code, the written law. And so he's simply saying, hey, you guys know the law. You're familiar with the law. I'm speaking to those that are familiar with the law. Why does Paul need to say this? Because of how he's been writing. You might think up until chapter seven that Paul is somehow against God's law. That he doesn't like God's law, that he's antinomian, which means that he's anti-God's law. But that's not a reality. And Paul wants his listeners to know that. He wants his readers to know that. He's expecting Jewish pushback for, for them to go, Paul, what about the law of God? That was God's law. That was written by God. What do we do with that? And, and, and Paul is helping them to understand, hey, you know the law. But if you go back to the beginning of Romans 1, he's saying that everyone knows the law anyways. He's saying that if you look at the natural world that God created, you can't get away from it. But he's also saying your very conscience tells that you know the law of God. There's something in you that knows right and wrong. That's true of every human. There's something in us that knows right and wrong. There's this brilliant philosopher and theologian named Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer had what, uh, what was a tape recording analogy that he used to use. And he explained it like this. If... At the end of your life, you stood before God and God hit play on the tape recorder and it only recorded everything that came out of your mouth. How would you fare before God to the standard that you held others to? And he said, by that own standard of how we hold other people, he goes, you would fail. And, and what is he saying that all of us know right from wrong? When we judge other people, we're saying that we know there's a standard in the world of what is right and what is wrong. And we would say that standard itself which shows that we know that the law of God is written on every person's heart in all of humanity. And he goes on and he gives this example of marriage. And, and it's a great example. Paul, Paul is saying here, he's like, hey, when you're in a marriage, there is a law that holds that marriage together. There are things. I think everyone could admit that going and living an adulterous life is not going to produce a healthy marriage. And so he's saying inside of a covenant marriage, where two have become one and they are in a covenant union together, there are things that bind that marriage together. But if a spouse dies, you're no longer bound by that. You're free to marry. So it's, it's, it's very simple what he's trying to unpack, but then he rolls into this next thing. Before we do that, it's important for us to know and understand this. 
There is still inside of the church today a lot of confusion about God's law. You, you commonly hear it say, well, that doesn't apply to me anymore because that was the Old Testament stuff and it has nothing to do with me. And so let's look to some of our reformers to help us understand what God's law means. There was a man named John Calvin. He was a Protestant reformer and he used uh, three uses of the law. And so I'm, I'm kind of summarizing these for you guys. But he said the very first purpose of God's law is to show us God's character and to be a mirror. R.C. Sproul, great theologian, pastor who's passed away, he said this hit him one day when he was walking by a window. And he looked in the window and he saw his middle section and said, I'm going to join Weight Watchers. Not just that, he said literally right after that, his wife called the grocery store. This is the time before cell phones and said, and so he said, the gentleman that worked at the grocery store came up to him and said, hey, uh, your wife is on the phone. He goes, how do you know it's my wife? And she goes, it's, uh, she, uh, she said, uh, he's the short chubby guy. And so he said, he realized this, that that mirror that he looked into and those things told him something that he was not how he wanted to be. When we look at God's law, it's his good law. God, it, it reveals to us God's character. It reveals to us the way the world is supposed to be, but it also reveals to us that we're not as we're supposed to be. The second use of the law that Calvin said was God's civil restraint. So God uses his good law to restrain evil inside of the world. The third one is that God's law instructs us how to live in such a way that honors and worships God. It's a very good thing. We can look at the law after our relationship changes with it, which we'll get to, and, and we can look at it and say, hey, the same God who gave that law is the same God who never changes. That law is a very good law, and it teaches us how to live. Now, Martin Luther, a Protestant reformer, just had one view of the law. He said the law has one purpose, and it's to be a schoolmaster that drives us to the fact that we are utterly crushed by the law, that we see as humanity we cannot live up to God's standards, and it drives us to our need for Jesus, the only one who could live according to God's law. It's important that we know that, because again, some people are going to say, well, what do we do with the law? There's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament, it doesn't seem, we would say, the moral law of God still remains because that moral God, that God of good character, that God that was revealing himself and teaching us how to live is still the same God. We don't throw the law away, which is why Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't get, uh, come to get rid of it, toss it away. I came to fulfill it. I came to live in the way that you cannot live. In verse four, we're going to look at this. We're going to camp out here for a little bit. I'll say this. You, you belong to the law or you belong to the law keeper. If you're in this room, a few weeks ago, Brad preached, you're either in Adam, which means that you're still in the sinful state you're born in, or you're in Christ. You're either in sin and held captive to that, or you're in Christ. This week, we're going to say, you're either married to the law or to the law keeper. Those are the two categories. And if you're like, man, I'm just coming here for the first time. I'm not a Christian. Don't try to put that marriage stuff on me. We get it. You have commitment issues, but just hear me out. Because what I'm trying to show you is everyone, everyone is either married to the law and all of humanity or you're married to Christ. So just hang in there with me. Let's look at this. Verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Notice what the text says. It It doesn't say the law died. Look, let's read it again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law 
to the body of Christ. So the law doesn't die. We die to the law in our relationship with the law. That's important for us to see. The law doesn't die. It, it doesn't just go away. Our relationship with the law changes. And here's what I mean that you're married to the law or you're married to the law giver. And I'm not saying you have a good relationship with the law. Quite the contrary. I would say you don't have a relationship with the law. And when you stand before God one day, that very law is going to be the law that proves you to be an unfaithful spouse. So I would say you don't have a good marriage with it because that law is going to condemn you. What that law is going to do is it's going to show you that you have not lived according to God's standard. And if you say, I don't think I'm married to the law, I, I would just say, this is, this is how we know that we're married to the law, is that we use the law to, <clears throat> in our relationships. An example, a lot of marital problems, a lot of relational problems come from us using the law against one another. And so what we do is we go to someone and we hold, uh, I'm, I'm going to use my Bible, but we hold the law over them and say, here's all the things that you're not doing. And here's all the things that you should be doing. And then what I do in that moment is I, I come underneath the law and I say, here's all the ways I'm actually righteous. And then I'm nailing it and you're not able to see those things. And then we go back and forth about how you're failing it. I'm actually not. And we do this and that creates relational strife in our marriages because what we start to do is lord expectations over our spouse or people in our relationships. We say, here's everything you're not doing. My love is contingent upon that. You're, you're, you're not doing it. And then again, we're, we're showing, maybe you can't see this, but this is why I'm a really awesome spouse and why I'm the one that's nailing it because look at all the things I'm doing. That creates massive, massive problems. We live in a world where we're constantly trying to prove ourselves and we're trying to prove our goodness to others. And then we're holding expectations over others. And then simply at, at the end of our life, if God were to say to us, hey, why would I let you into my kingdom? Sadly, I'm afraid that many people in this room and many people today would give their list of moral efforts that they've done for God. They would say, here's how I've obeyed your law. Here's how I've lived according to your law. Here's how I've been a pretty good person. Here's what I've done. Here's what I haven't done. And you would see that God's law can be summarized in this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That alone drove the Protestant German teacher, Martin Luther, mad. He goes, no one can do that. No one can love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength every second of every day. No one loves their neighbor by themselves. The very basis of the law shows us we can't do that. It's crushing. Therefore, you can stand before God and say, I have not kept your law. The very... The very law that I'm married to, that I use to try and compare myself to others is the very thing that shows I haven't, I haven't lived up to the standard. The law shows that I'm an unfaithful spouse. It stands to condemn us. Look at the text again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. How? How? Through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God, we die to the law. But how do we die to the law? Through the body of Christ. What does that mean? It means this. The, the lawgiver, the one who created the law, flowed from his natural character of goodness. 
That person who gave the law stepped into humanity saying, you can't keep it. You've all failed at trying to keep God's law. I have failed. You have failed. We have failed. Jesus' presence on earth was showing us that we're not good at keeping the law. And so he comes. Jesus lives a life of obedience to God's law. Every temptation that faced him, he walked against it. When he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he resisted. In every way that we give into temptation, every way that we give into sin, Christ rebelled against it. He walked against sin, and he walked a life of obedience. The lawgiver became the only true law-abiding citizen to ever walk this earth, according to God's law. Here's where it gets tricky. You are saved through the body of Christ. You died to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? Hear me out. You are saved by works. And I know that sounds heretical, so I'm going to say it again. You are saved by works, but you're never saved by your works. You are saved through the works of Jesus Christ and your trust in him. He took the obedient life and hung on a cross. The old Marvin Gaye song that there ain't no mountain high enough to keep me from you, that became true. There wasn't a mountain high enough to separate us, to to, to separate Christ from rescuing his bride. Not even a mountain with a bloody cross on top of it. And so he hung there. And what was he doing? Satisfying God's holiness, God's justice, and God's wrath. Because what God wasn't saying is there's not like law and love. At the cross, you have God's law, his holy and righteous standard upheld by the innocent, perfect life of Jesus. But you also have his holiness and his just and his wrath coming down on Christ, the only innocent man to ever walk this earth, showing this man upheld my law, and this man is the perfect display of love. Through our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he makes rebellious sinners, law-abiding saints. He makes us new people. It's almost like this, and please hear me out because I'm not saying this literally. Literally, this is figurative language. It's, it's as though God puts on glasses that before you put your trust and faith in his son, the way that God looks at you is through a lens and the lens is his law. So when he looks at your life before Christ, what he sees is the law and he sees your failure to live according to his good law. But when you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, he has cross lenses so that when he looks at your life, this life of law rebellion becomes a life of law obedience because what he chooses to see when he looks at you is the cross and his son's obedience and the life that he gave there on the cross. And so what he chooses to see is not actually a a life of sinful rebellion against him. He sees a a person who has perfectly obeyed God's law and he never takes those lenses off. That's what we call a covenant. It's like the greatest of all promises. It's God saying, I'm bringing you through my son's body, through his death, through his resurrection when he was raised, I'm bringing you into a covenant relationship with me that can never be broken. So that at the end of our lives, if we stood before God at this time and the law, our old spouse accuses us and says, here's every way you failed. Jesus, our new spouse, our new marriage, our greater groom says, here's every way that I've fulfilled every one of those commands. And I stand in their place. And we call that the good news of the gospel. 
Well, the good news of the gospel helps us belong. Every person in here, every person in here has this immense desire to be desired. We want to belong. That is why, please hear me out. It is why some young people go from relationship to relationship. It is why we keep searching for the next best thing to somehow fulfill us. Author, pastor, theologian, Tim Keller says that our humanity's greatest desire is to be fully known and fully loved. Only, only when we belong to Christ are we actually fully known. All of our brokenness, all the areas in our life where we've put that construction tape over and says, too broken, don't go near it. Christ knows all of that. Everything that you have tucked away that you have not revealed to anyone else, Christ knows all of that. He knows you to your greatest depth in a way that you don't even know yourself. And he says, I love you. Our problem is, do we know that or do we believe that? And oftentimes our longing for other things show that we don't actually believe that. We believe the next person, the next thing is the very thing that's going to fix our longings. But what we're longing for is to belong, to belong to Christ. And he's the only one that makes that a reality. He's the only one that changes that. You could say, well, am I going to have to give some stuff up? Yeah, it's going to, anytime you're in a marriage, you would understand you don't just look out for yourself anymore. And when you're married to Jesus, it's going to look different. I like what Keller says. We have a quote. Daniel will pull up for you guys here. It says this, just as a sailboat is not free to sail unless it confines itself in significant ways. So you will never know the freedom of love unless you limit your choices in significant ways. There is no greater feeling of uh, liberation than to feel and be loved well. The affirmation that comes from love liberates you from fears and self-doubts. It frees you from having to face the world alone with only your own ingenuity and resources. Your friend or mate will be crucial to helping you achieve many of your goals in life. In all these ways, love is liberating, perhaps the most liberating thing. But the minute you get into a love relationship and the deeper and more intimate and the more wonderful it gets, the more you will also have to give up your independence. But it's, this, it's in this relationship, and, and, and young unmarried people hear me. You can actually have true longing, true desires that are satisfied in the marriage of belonging to your true groom. In a way that maybe you think that only once I get married, I'll have this some satisfaction that's going to come over me. Right now, as a single person, you can have the greatest satisfaction in your covenant marriage relationship with Jesus as you belong to him. As we belong, our longings change. Look at verses five and six. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What does this mean? And we're going to come back to fruit for God at the end of verse four. What does this mean? For while we were still living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members, being fruit for death. Here's what it means. When the law of God appears, all it does is show that we are born with a sinful nature. That sinful nature cannot be changed apart from Jesus Christ. We do not go from sinners to saying apart from Christ. That's not possible. So what the law shows is actually 
how much lawbreakers we are. What the law shows is actually how sinful we are. And so what happens is that we're aroused by the law. And, and here's, here's what Paul means. Get this. If you don't know the law, you won't necessarily be aroused to somehow sin against it. But once you know the law, you can see how much your sinful nature wants to rebel. And here's what I mean. You put a do not touch sign in front of any kid. What happens? It's like, you see, you see it all start to, and I, I'm, I'm that kid guys. And so you just see, it, you're like, oh man, what they're doing is they don't want you to touch. Cause you know, it's going to be awesome. And so everything in you is being held back from whatever's on the other side of that tape or whatever it is. So it is. We are aroused in two ways. Hear me out. Our sinful passions aroused by the law come out in two primary ways, legalism and licentiousness. What we do is we start to look at God's law and then we, we do one of two things and both are a flat out rejection of Jesus Christ. And they're both an attempt for us to save ourselves is we look at the law and go, awesome. I see the law and now I can use it. This is legalism. Now that I know God's law, I will use it as a means to put God under my captivity and in my control. What I mean by that is now what I will do with the law is that I will obey it so well that I will look at God and tell him, you have no choice but to love me. Look at the life I'm living. Look at my righteousness. Look at my things. Look at what I'm doing for you. And so we look at the law and say, I'm going to accomplish that. And what that does is well up all sorts of pride within us. The other side is the licentious version. You see, the way legalism rejects Jesus is it says, Jesus, thank you so much for your obedient life. Thank you so much for a bloody cross. Thank you so much for rising from the dead. I'll take it from here. Or it wasn't good enough. Let me add a little bit more to your sufficient life and death. Now, licentiousness, our, our rebellion against God's law says, thank you for the law, but I'm, I'm going to live my own way. I'm going to reject Jesus. I don't think Jesus can satisfy my longings. I don't think he can quench my thirst. I don't think belonging to him is actually going to give me what I need. And so what I'm going to do is see the law and say, no, thanks. I'll reject it. I'm going to live how I want to live, which is why as a culture, we've adopted our own sexual ethic, which is why as a culture, we do many things in flat out rebellion against God's law. Yet to no avail, we see where those paths lead. It's because we've said Jesus thinks, but no thanks. What is the fruit of those things? Division. Here's what I mean. There's a sociological framework called intersectionality. Hear me out. I know it's a touchy subject. Here's what, here's what it's unpacking. That we have social identities. And we have all different kinds of social identities. You can be identified by your race. You can by, uh, be identified by your gender. You can be identified by so many different things. And this sociological framework should have stayed in academia but it's morphed into something awful. And here is what I mean. It is awful because with everything philosophical or sociological, what we need to ask is what is the problem that's being presented and what is the solution? At one time we could say there was at least a decent effort to say, yes, women not voting is a discrimination. But now what it is, is a framework to show how everything in life is some sort of discrimination and it devalues you, and it puts you lower and lower and lower. And so the result is this, is that everyone needs to recognize the, dis, the discrimination and the hurt that they've caused 
And so the solution is recognizing this, letting a, a certain group of people climb and, and then seeing how unique they are by all these different categories. And, and these people down here need to see how much of an oppressor that they are. It's no solution at all. The problem that the Bible paints is that we're sinners by nature that can't rescue ourselves. The solution is Christ and Christ alone can. And here's what it does. Please hear me. This, this, this framework, this sociological framework is going to create division because what it's going to say is, well, here's, here's who I am and here's what I'm not getting and here's what I'm not. Well, here's what I've done and here's what I've done. And there's going to be this back and forth constant tension that creates all sorts of devices, uh, uh, division and disunity. What does the gospel create? A recognizing amongst humanity that we have sinned against our holy creator and a recognition that the only way back into his presence is by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And now there's a new race. Now there's a new identity. All are one in Christ. And no one gets to look across the table. No one gets to say, well, you have this, I don't have this. We share the greatest need in common and the greatest solution in common. The fruit that that produces is the fruit of life. It's unity, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's self-control. It's beautiful. The, the fruit of rebellion against God's law, the fruit of trying to be legalistic, the fruit of trying to be licentious, or the fruit of some of these other sociological frameworks that our world provides is the fruit of death, divisiveness, disunity, critical natures, and all of that. Which is why Paul ends with saying, but now in verse 6, we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the way of the written code. You see, that whole framework is an attempt for us to use all sorts of laws and rules against one another. Christianity squashes all that. The lawgiver becomes the law keeper and makes us all righteous and holy and perfect in the sight of God. We belong to one Lord. We are one family that all sits around his table for all eternity by one way, his life, his death, his bloodshed, his resurrection. That's unity. When we belong, we long. What do we long for? Thanks for asking. Let me say this first. We need to look at Jesus and look at his life because some people are like, man, I don't want to obey the law. I don't want to obey God's law. I don't want to stop. Uh, you name it. I don't want to stop getting drunk. I don't want to stop doing this. I don't want to stop having sex with my girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever it is. Look at Jesus Christ and tell me that there's never been a more joyful, free human being to ever walk this earth. Why? Because he lived perfectly according to God's good law. It didn't suck him of joy. It didn't rob him of some sort of uh, human experience. He lived fully, freely, he lived an amazing life because he lived out the life that we can't live on behalf of us for God's glory. So it's important that we know that, that we look at God's law. We shouldn't look at it as oppressive. We shouldn't look at it as like, ah, oh, that's not going to be fun. Sometimes we do. We can trust the spirit will change the way that we view God's law. All right. It says here that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way. So when we belong, we long. What do we long for? Let's start here. One thing. What we start to long for is we start to actually know God's law and we long to live a life according to it. Why? Because for the first time, please hear me, for the first time we look at God's law and go, okay, it's not a means now for you to love me. 
Jesus took care of that. And so now it's actually a way that I can live in such a way that honors you and worships you and also brings fullness of life, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of life. The way that Jesus lends it out is actually going to live, lead to a better life. And so what we do is we actually long for the law of God. We long to know it. When you read Psalm 119, when you read Psalm 1, what what you start to see is the author saying, God, I delight for your law. Why? Because he knows that the law is a very good thing. And so live in God's word, get to know God's law and know that you're free to actually live out God's law. Christians, we're the most dangerous people on the face of the earth. My daughters, yesterday, one was going to a basketball game, the other one was going to dance. On the way there, I said, hey, what makes you a dangerous dancer? Such a weird question. Uh, and then I walked with my daughter, Brooks, or, or, or with my daughter, Joey, to, to help her understand. I was like, hey, who's the most important person in all the universe? God. Who loves you with an unfailing, unchanging love? God. Who do you belong to? God. Anyone else then is just a bonus. Mom and dad, our love, bonus. Brother and sister, bonus. You belong to your creator. He, however you dance is not going to change his mind about you. You're dangerous because you're free. Same thing with my daughter who was going to basketball. At the end of this game, is God going to change his love for you? No. Your mom and dad, no. You belong. That's never going to change. Man, how much freedom do you have to go out there and just give it your all? So much. And so do we. Because we belong. Live in God's word, number one. Live in God's word so we know his law. Number two, we long for the bride of Christ. You need to hear this, please. God didn't just save an individual. He saved a people. If you want your heart to be along, uh, aligned with Christ, what does Christ love? What is Christ crazy about? His bride. Some of you, I want to say this. Some of you, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, uh, said, you love your vision of what the church could be and what community more than you actually love the bride of Christ. Some of you don't look through the same lens that God looks at you on the bride of Christ. You can spot every flaw and every blemish, knowing that God doesn't do that to you in Christ, but yet we do that to our church family. Is our, our family of Ian and Hannah and the people, are we a broken family? Absolutely. Is there fighting and quarreling and disunity and conflict? Absolutely, because we're a family. And in this family, God has given us the opportunity to love others like Christ loves us with forgiveness, with pursuit, with reconciliation. Long for the bride, not the bride that you want, not the kind of spouse that you want. Long for the bride of Christ that sits with you right now. Yeah, thanks, Caleb. Long to serve. It says that we now serve in a new way, in the spirit. Serving isn't natural to us unless it's ourself. But we have plenty of needs, church family. Our nature to sin changes our longing for the things we once longed for changes. Our longing for the law changes. We actually long to live obedient to God's law. Again, because we're so loved by God. And his law calls us to serve one another. It's time. Not like, yeah, I think in a couple weeks, I'm thinking I'm going to, no, it's time. <laughs> Fellas, I, I, I love Ian. Almost every week I watch Ian tear down stuff. He's got three little kids. I'm like, fellas, I'll speak to you directly. I would love for y'all to come up here and help our brother who's doing a lot of this stuff by himself. It's just a simple way that we can help serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Let's serve. And I'll say this. It's not an actual additional one. When we don't want to serve, we trust God with his commands and trust that Christ will catch our heart up in the process. We belong. And when we belong to Christ, our longings change. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your living word, for your truth, and for the truth, Jesus, that you became the law-abiding citizen on our behalf so we could belong to you, we could be loved by you, we could enter into a new marriage where we die to the law and the captivity there and live freely for you with the new spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.